Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. One of the issues that is so close to my heart is how art influences culture. I often say nothing can change the world the way art can. It brings us together across so many of our divides to discuss important issues. Boy, does our guest this week have a story about a group of artists who lived authentically and pushed against social boundaries. Nino Strachey. Nino is a writer, historian, and public speaker who has worked as head of research for the National Trust. She has worked for English Heritage and the National Trust, curating the homes of scientists, politicians, and writers. Her new book, Young Bloomsbury, The Generation That Redefined Love, Freedom, and Self-Expression in the 1920s England, is now available to order. But what about 100 years ago in the 1920s? And what about members of the LGBTQ community? Hi, I'm Nino Strachey. I'm a writer and historian. And I'm proud to share queer histories. Sorry, not sorry. You know, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. And I want to get to your book. But before we do, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about what you do? Sure. So I'm a writer and cultural historian. And I worked for many years as a curator for the National Trust and English Heritage. And I think I became increasingly interested in sharing hidden and underrepresented history. And that's really the direction that my work has taken me and into more recently looking at the Bloomsbury Group and life of in the 1920s. Tell me what was British culture and public life like in the early part of the 20th century? It's interesting because I think we often look back at the 20s and assume that it was all a wild time of flapper fun with nightclubs and cocktails and jazz music and everything was great. But it's actually interesting in the UK, there was quite a repressive conservative government at that time, and in particular, a Home Secretary who wanted to clamp down on nightlife and sexual depravity and had a particular thing against women in suits. That was quite shocking. And painted boys who were roaming the streets. And so you have this kind of dichotomy between the bright young things who were all trying, experimenting with new stuff and a government and conservative social structure that was thinking very differently. 
And when you say experimenting with new stuff, what does that mean? I think there's this amazing combination of the rush of new technology. So things like flying, the radio, film, cinema, all of this new things, a new art movement, things like Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, but also having fun sexually and combining your wonderful nightclubbing life and all these amazing new cocktails and new types of dances with experimenting with gender, with different types of sexual partners and fancy dress thrown into the mix, dressing up as whatever you wanted to be, whoever you wanted to be. And tell me a little bit about the Bloomsbury Group and how it was founded. Who were they? So they were a group of writers and artists who came together in London before the First World War. And at that time, they were a group of sort of independent and free thinking people who were a bit out of step of their time. They, at that point, they were speaking mainly to each other. They hadn't reached an audience. And so they were unusual because they were male and female and treating each other equally. And so they were quite this tight-knit group. And then along came the First World War. And then after that came a generation who were disillusioned, who were not so respectful of their Victorian ancestors, people who'd led them to death in the war. And suddenly... Bloomsbury came into their own and found that their thoughts were in tune with this generation of new young people who were looking forward. And they started reaching an audience in England and in America. Virginia Woolf, Ian e. Foster, the Virginia sister, the artist Vanessa Bell, the painter Duncan Grant, and the economist Maynard Keynes, who really changed the face of economic history after the war. I mean, we talk so much about influencers nowadays. These were really influencers of their time. What was that influence, their influence like at the time? Well, I think what's interesting is that, as I said, before the First World War, they had very little influence because they hadn't reached an audience. But when they met this group of younger people after the First World War and began to use all these new methods of communicating, so they began to broadcast on the radio in the old days, of course, when English was a new language, writers could invent new words and use them. Nowadays, it's easy enough to invent new words. They spring to the lips whenever we see a new sight or feel a new sensation. But we cannot use them. They began to appear in the popular press. They were in the society columns and the gossip columns. They were in vogue. Virginia Woolf said that she was swept golden guineas off the counter when she started being painted, paid by Vogue. And that brought them to this broad audience of hundreds of thousands of people. And we talked a little bit about this, but I want to go deeper into how the Bloomsbury Group really challenged so many longstanding social conventions. And I'm really interested in the intergenerational aspect of the group. Can you just speak a little to that? Speak a little to old Bloomsbury and young Bloomsbury. Who were they? How did they come together? So I think old Bloomsbury, by the time you get to the 1920s, were a group of people in their 40s who were reaching what they were hoped to be the peak of their careers. And they came into contact with a group of young people who were 20. So these were people who were 20s, 20 in the 1920s, so 20 years younger than the original Bloomsbury Group members. And Virginia Woolf and Lytton Strait, she would come across them at Oxford University, at Cambridge University, and in London. There was an amazing bookshop in Bloomsbury run by one of their lovers who introduced them to this whole panoply of young people. And what was really incredible is that this group of younger people in their 20s were meeting an older group who were accepting, in a way, 
that their own biological families were absolutely not. So it's what I like to talk about is Bloomsbury as a family of choice. So a group of queer friends and allies bound by friendship and really joined the relationships through life. And what was lovely is the way that they could provide a nurturing a surrounding for these young people that they weren't finding at home. And when you look into their lives, as I do in detail in the book, you realise that many of them were being sent by their families for conversion therapy, which was a really traumatic process. There are several members of Young Bloomsbury, like Eddie Sapville West, were sent to Germany to a clinic. He had injections in his groin. He had psychotherapy. Stephen Tennant was sent to a year for to a psychiatric hospital. So that if that was the way you're being treated by the world at that point, and you meet a group of adults who are not only happy to accept your sexuality, they encourage you in it. It certainly was just a release and a wonderful place to find. And a great thing to think about happening 100 years ago, that here was this nurturing environment of older people who were helping this younger group realise all their creative ambitions and really giving them a place where they could be happy. And they broke many sexual conventions. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Tell us about that and what was happening in this, I don't know, can I say tangled web? Oh, yeah. Well, it was a wonderful world of polyamory, pansexuality and throuples. That was one of my favorite things. There were many throuples. And what was great is obviously they were experimenting in all these types of relationships before you had any, like nowadays. If you're joining a poly family, you've got loads of books to read, like The Ethical Slut or something. Um, Non-monogamy is a normal thing. But 100 years ago, there was nothing out there to tell you what to do or how to behave. And these group were all experimenting in every possible way. Yeah, absolutely. We need to rethink love and commitment. You know, 60 years ago uh, was when we decided that men had to be monogamous, too. Men were not monogamous for all of recorded human history. Men had concubines and whores. And 60 years ago, straight relationships began to become more egalitarian and it was less of a property transaction. A marriage had been a property transaction for most of recorded human history. And it became a union of two equals. And at that moment, instead of deciding to, to allow women to have the same sort of freedom and leeway that men did, we decided to let men have the same limitations, uh, impose the same limitations that women had. And we put monogamous uh, sexual commitment at the heart of all relationships, all long-term commitments, all marriages, and we have watched. Uh, we should now be able to recognize the consequences of that, which are a lot of short-term relationships, a lot of divorce. So can you tell me what your opinion, because this is obviously something that I care so much about and do see such importance in it, what is the role you find, the role of art in changing culture at large? Well, I think what art is able to do is to reach a massive audience with a powerful message, whether we're talking about an image or a piece of writing. And I, perhaps the most obvious example of that from the Bloomsbury Group is Virginia Woolf's Orlando. Here you have this amazing story of a non-binary person living through 400 years of history, changing their gender as the time progresses. And here we are in 2022. Orlando is coming on the stage in London for the first ever time being played by a non-binary actor. And Virginia was writing this 
in the 20s and drawing from young Bloomsbury in order to create that character. She had the inspiration both from her lover, Vita Sackville-West, and from Vita's first cousin, Eddie Sackville-West, both of whom were genderqueer in their presentation. And thinking about this wonderful range of gender expressions and the freedom to be that person, whoever you wanted to be. As I'm listening to you speak, I'm wondering if there's any parallels to the Bloomsbury group in writing or art today. What do you think? I think we're seeing a real flowering of that type of literature right now, and particularly the celebration of trans identities, for example. And I think what's so lovely is this continuing passage of history, because there was Virginia doing that 100 years ago, and here we are today. And yet some people still feel it's something new because queer and trans identities are timeless. They have been with us forever. And yet, for some reason, if you don't have an eye on history, you might be needing to think that this is suddenly something that's happening in 2022. But no. And always when there are norms challenged, there's a sense that things are being erased. I'm just wondering why you think the queer history of the Bloomsbury Group disappeared from our knowledge for so long. The sort of pattern I see is almost a sense of a prurient response to Bloomsbury. So a sense of shock and rejection of their behaviour, maybe like in the 1950s and 60s, and a sort of then a kind of papering over of that, rather than the way we might look at Bloomsbury today in thinking of celebrating the joy of their relationships. And there was a sort of almost, a, I talk about it as a kind of obsession of who put what into who when, rather than thinking about these life-affirming connections that lasted a lifetime. And what do you think when you have done this research as you sit, you're writing your book, sitting with everything that you've learned, what are the lessons? What are the lessons that we can learn from the Bloomsbury Group, I guess just to make more durable change? Well, the lesson that the Bloomsbury Group have taught me most is the value of acceptance in nurturing young queer lives and in enabling to provide a, a warm and happy environment. I think some of the most rewarding moments I've had in talking to audiences here in the UK about the book is when I find couples coming up to me after the talk these would be cis-het couples coming up and saying, how can we show our support and our alliance? Because when you look about the statistics, particularly in relation to mental health for young queer people today in the UK, and I don't know the stats in America, but in the UK, some of the figures are very frightening still regarding self-harm, feelings of suicide, experiences of bullying and prejudice are still incredibly high. 45% of LGBTQ youth seriously considered attempting suicide in 2021. That's according to a survey from The Trevor Project, a nonprofit providing crisis support for LGBTQ youth. The organization says it's the third consecutive year that rates of suicidal ideation have increased among LGBTQ youth. So that is the enduring and ongoing lesson. Yeah, you know, currently in the United States, we have one party that is just feeding on people's fear of different types of people. And we see conservative backlash against queer literature in libraries. It worries me. I'm sure it worries you. What do you think the future of queer literary works looks like? I'd love to be hopeful. 
I think it's extraordinary. I mean, when you look at the strange, the waves of hatred that come up through time, even in the passage of the period that I was writing about, I'm writing in my book between sort of 1920 and the late 30s. And here you have this curve heading into, at that point, war, fascism and oppression. And you never quite know where that 20, 30 year cycle is going to take you. And you'd like to hope that the role would be better each time, but we can never be certain. And so I look back and I think, I look at the bravery of the young people that I was writing about in the 20s, particularly the young men who faced prosecution. Because at this point in the 1920s in London, if you were found walking at night in a street as a young man with a powder compact in your pocket, you could be arrested and sent to prison for three months hard labour. So. It was an incredible act of bravery. You were facing prosecution. And even as a woman, you could be, as Radcliffe Hall was, prosecuted for obscenity in 1928 for publishing The Well of Loneliness. So you could have your book destroyed. So these were people who were braver. Obviously, what can I say? A large parts of the world, you'd still be faced in that situation today, but not in the UK and not in America. You mentioned bravery, and I think a lot of people in the queer community have to be incredibly brave still to this day. How do you think it showed up in their art then, and how is it showing up in their art now? Oh, well, if I'm looking back at the 20s, I constantly, when I'm looking at imagery, that phrase hiding in plain sight comes to mind. Because I look at Cecil Beaton's photography, for example, and I look at what is immediately apparent as a parade of non-binary young people dressed in the most amazing androgynous costume, people who would be very much at home on RuPaul's Drag Race right now. And how did audiences not pick that up at the time? And I think with queer art today, obviously, it can be, again, I limit this to UK and America and certain parts of the world. Obviously, you can express your queer identity in an equally way and have that discussed and acknowledged by historians and art historians in a way that 100 years ago wasn't possible. You're a curator, right? So are there other unknown queer histories just waiting to be discovered? All over the place. I think what's extraordinary that I worked as a curator for, oh gosh, nearly 30 years, I think it is. But for me, 2017 was a real turning point and an eye-opener. This was in the UK, the celebration of the 50 years since the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality. And I was involved in a public programme there, Prejudice and Pride, celebrating queer histories. And I thought, God, these were places and artworks and writers who I had probably researched and written about for most of my career. And I had never discussed them in the context of queer history. And I thought, whoa, that's a gap. So yeah, loads more to do. And if you were writing the book a century from now, let's think about that. Let's just go there for a second. How do you expect we as people will think of the art of today? And who would we be telling stories about? I mean, some of the people that come to mind to me is that the wonderful, in the UK, trans performance artist Travis Alabanza. I want you to know 
before you step outside that you are a warrior. You are a warrior who is allowed to be soft, a warrior that is allowed to be scared, a warrior that is allowed to ask for help, but still a warrior. I need you to know that when I am writing this, I have changed my outfit 17 times. I have removed my makeup for fear of insult. I have changed the way I walk down the street, but that I am still a warrior. I mean, I think that again is one of the wonderful changes is that we can now, through the power of video and film, you can have a permanence given to performances that in the past would have been transitory. So I think there is just a whole new world opening out of different possibilities. And there seems to be just this incredibly expansive, at least more expansive vocabulary surrounding queer culture than existed in the 1920s. There is actually a vocabulary. How does that change really how not only we create art, but also consume art? Does it make it easier to create, or do you think it provides more limitations because everything has to fit into a little box? I don't know. I think vocabulary is helpful because it gives us many more tools to be able to describe things, to describe ways of being, ways of seeing. And I think it is, I remember thinking about one of the ways that helped me think of the way that Virginia Woolf and her sister Vanessa Bell acted in creating dick spaces that were nurturing for others was thinking of them as den mothers and really how what they were doing was creating um i've described a bit about being bower birds surrounding themselves by works of art and it would allow anybody stepping into those spaces to immediately realize that they were stepping into a space that would be affirming of queer identities and i think that is a powerful and helpful thing and just creating yeah a safe space do you have a um, like a favorite story that you discovered while you were researching and curating stories for your book? Yeah, well, I think probably my favorite discovery was really the thing that led me down this uh, path in the first place. I was at work one day when a colleague rang me to say that they'd found a box of straight sheet papers at Knoll in Kent, which is the home of the Sackville West family. And until that point, I just hadn't known that my cousin John Strachey had lived with Eddie Sackville West in the 20s. They found these papers and Eddie and John had shared a flat in London in the 20s. And when they moved out, they had just swept all the papers into a box. And so it was letters and plays. And even Eddie kept himself fit using a little chest expander. And that was put in the box. And what was amazing is all these letters just gave you a vignette into a lost world of of Bloomsbury in the 20s. And these were letters written between friends and they were incredibly sexually honest. And what impressed me about it, again, at that point, had any of them been read by a policeman, you would have been arrested. In eras when the law criminalised your love, how was it possible to meet members of the same sex? In the 1920s, people we might now consider to be LGBTQ people used innovative and creative ways to meet members of the same sex, involving love letters, publications and events. And we know there was essentially a thriving queer community who were willing and able to socialise despite the risk. They were talking about homosexual love, lesbian love, you name it, and bisexuality in a really warm and affirming way. And I thought, I want to know more about this world. And as the mother of a child who identifies as queer and gender fluid, I wanted to really think about the queer history of our own family as well. 
I'm sitting here smiling to myself because I'm thinking about how many people who are afraid of queer culture might have their own hidden queer family history. Inevitably. Statistics indicate that it will be true. (laughs) What do you think, we call this a group that was radical, right, in its day? What do you think radical artistic communities look like today, especially in the world of social media? Trouble is, I'm afraid I'm, this is not so good. My subject area, my child would be incredibly <laughs> up to the minute on all of this. I'm so sorry, but I am. No, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, I'm just, I'm always fascinated by the connection between present day and our history and how things seem so cyclical, but also how things are able to evolve and change based on, like you said before, the technology that is capable of reaching more people, which was true in the 20s. It's certainly true now. Finally, what gives you hope? I think what gives me hope is some of the responses that I have had both personally and in print to the book, because I think what is lovely in terms of talking about queer history is that as soon as one is talking about queer lives in the past and sharing just the ordinary stories of queer lives and loves, uh, happiness and sadness, it immediately becomes less threatening and easy to talk about. For those who might be triggered by some of these areas, if you're thinking of it in a historical concept, it changes everything and can be something that can be talked about happily and openly. And I think if you can begin to talk about queer lives in the past, then you can begin to be more accepting of queer lives in the present. Well, Nino, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Great to be here. If you look at art's stories and histories, they've been told from perspectives that are almost entirely straight, cisgendered, white. But LGBTQ plus artists have always existed, and so has LGBTQ plus art. Art history is full of hidden queer artworks, ready to be resurfaced, researched, and recontextualized. So why was queer art hidden in the first place? How do we go about resurfacing it? And why is it so important that we do? As we know, explicitly queer artworks have historically been hidden because of societal laws and religious prejudice. Homosexuality was a prosecutable offence. Homosexuality was still criminalised in Scotland in 1980s, a full 13 years later than a decriminalisation in England. I just don't understand. I don't understand how a century after these groundbreaking artists pushed against restrictive and binary social norms, we're still having the same fights. I don't get how culture has remained so close to so many people just because they don't fit into an artificial and exclusive set of expectations. Not norms. Expectations. And yet, here we are. We've got mass shootings at gay bars, idiotic social media accounts, right-wing media and politicians are attacking children's hospitals and other medical providers for providing gender-affirming care. Some states are even criminalizing this care. We're still trying to get the government to codify marriage equality, all while the standards of what defines a relationship continue to evolve. Polyamory and ethical non-monogamy, once considered fringe, is now becoming mainstream. Our culture is 
queer, and somehow our power structures are just refusing to accept it. Maybe it's because that as we get older, we get more set in our ways. And that's why I'm always so inspired by the generations which come after me. They challenge my thinking. They open new avenues of thoughts. They, like Lincoln, demand that the dogmas of the quiet past be cast aside to meet the demands of a stormy present. We've seen whispers of how powerful Gen Z can be, changing our thinking on so many critical issues, how they and their artists are pushing us forward into a more equitable future. I hope we will be wise enough to listen. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.